Hello, I'm Julie Miller, and welcome to MCQ Views and Voices, the podcast about life in the Mauricie and Centre-du-Québec. Continuing our series, From Burton to Barton, about the history of English and Anglos in the Trois-Rivières and surrounding area. My co-host for this season is, of course, local historian François Roy. week, François is going to tell us about what happened in Trois-Rivières during World War II. So how did World War II affect the town, and how was it different from other wars, especially for Trifluvians? You'll hear about prisoners of war, and how the exhibition grounds were transformed during the war years. We'll talk about local factories that converted their productions during the war years, and we'll also talk about the role of the Cap de la Madeleine airport in the federal government's war plans. François even has a tale to tell about epic local snowball fights between neighborhoods that started in the 1940s. All this and more in this episode dedicated to the Second World War. Well, François, it's so nice to see you again. Well, I'm fine, but uh, we're going to have to talk about a world war, so uh, it will be a little delicate as a as a topic, you know, as a mm-hmm. subject of the of discussion, because World War Two is about to break in our podcast. Yeah. Uh, we're II. in 1939. Seems like this war will be for Trois Rivières will be very different from the First World War for some political reasons. Can we talk about politics? In 1914... Oh, we can always talk about politics. On in 1914, First World War, Great Britain was at war, and Canada had to follow Great Britain. And uh, it was, uh, of course, uh, the, the action in Trois-Rivières, in a place like Trois-Rivières, the action was mainly around the armory on uh, Saint-François-Xavier Saint Street. There was nothing... The, the whole city was not really involved in this war effort in 1914. In 1939, things have changed. Canada was independent following the Statute of Westminster. They declared war on Germany. The federal government was responsible for uh, the war effort, and they uh, they were very uh, they they were interfering very much with the jurisdiction of the provinces for some political reasons. It started in the 30s in Ottawa with uh, Mackenzie King. Mackenzie King saw the uh, the collapse of the Liberal Party in England. It was split between the Labour and the Conservatives. He didn't want to disappear as a Liberal Party and as a Liberal government in Ottawa. So what the Liberals uh, did in Ottawa, they, they they decided to turn left and to get involved in wolf in you know uh, uh, social politics international politics, 
they wanted to uh, they didn't care about the provincial jurisdictions so it made of course uh, a sort of uh, a bad uh, state of relations between uh, Ottawa and provinces mainly Quebec and Ontario and Alberta those three provinces was were resisting to in the 30s to the uh, the invasion of, of the, liber the 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 federal government and with the war it was even worse the there was a, a, a person, the, the, the real important person when the war break, broke out was not the Minister of Defense. That was the, he was the Minister of uh, Wartime Supplies. He was called uh, uh, C.D. Howe, Clarence Decatur Howe. He was an American, but he was uh, the, the strong man in the Mackenzie King government. And he, as an American, he really didn't care about provincial, uh, provincial jurisdictions, you know. So he, uh, what he did in the 40s... It's interesting because there's a... Th yes, what's interesting? Well, it's interesting. There's, a, there's an institute named for C.D. Howe. Of course, of course. C.D. Howe... There's an institute named for, for C.D. Howe, and it's a right-wing think tank. Maybe, but uh, C.D. Howe didn't care about provinces. You know, he was American. He said that Canada should be, uh, should be uh, managed like the United States if there's a war... We, the, the, the government will take the, the whole control of the whole country for the war effort. So what they did in Trois-Rivières, it's incredible. They took, uh, first, they took a, a building downtown and made it the radar building. And then they took the whole exhibition ground, who was under construction, made it a, a, a place for training, a place for a, a, a prisoner's camp, and a place to uh, to distribute the uh, the federal uh, uh, checks, you know, of welfare and all that. And they took the civil airport of Cap de la Madeleine to make it a, a, a military airport. So that's important to understand that for the people in Trois-Rivières, the Second World War was something different uh, than the First World War. And because of all this action that was taking place in Trois-Rivières, there was a, a, a new wave, of, should I say, of Anglophones coming to Trois-Rivières for the war effort. Some of them were to, uh, at the airport for the training of pilots. Others were at the exhibition ground for the training of soldiers and for the whole uh, managing of the, 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 this enormous uh, military camp that became the exhibition ground in Trois-Rivières. So there was, uh, especially in the Saint-Sacrement parish, just down, down from uh, the exhibition ground, there was uh, a lot of uh, Anglophone families uh, settling there. A bit more about this uh, military camp on the exhibition grounds. You said it was it it, it was just to train soldiers, trained foot soldiers. More than that, uh, more, it, it, w it was. Tell, tell it me about was it. the heart of the war effort in the uh, in between Montreal and Quebec City. They even hosted uh, German prisoners, not for a long time. These prisoners were taken in the sometimes in uh, off the shore of Ireland or off the shore of Newfoundland or. Uh, sometime directly from England, and they were uh, they were detained in Canada, 
And uh, so when they were, before being headed to Montreal or to some other places uh, westward, they had stopped in Trois-Rivières. So for a couple of months or, or years, we had uh, German uh, prisoners at the, at the exhibition ground. I wonder how the local population felt about having a prisoner of war camp at the exhibition ground. That I mean, uh, <laughs> that's a curiosity. Was there a certain sense of paranoia, listen, of hysteria, listen, of that, curiosity? That was a curiosity for them, because for the French Canadians, the Germans never were really, uh, uh, should I say, terrible or enemies, or uh, and it was more strangely in in the Canadian West. At uh, the First World War and maybe the Second World War, some Germans, in, uh, they were in, in camps and uh, the people around them in southern Manitoba, for example, there were Ukrainian families. They were very close to the Germans. They, invite, they invited the, the prisoners in their homes, you know, for supper and all that because for the Ukrainians the, uh, in the West, the Germans were allied. They were people... Uh, they were soldiers who were there to liberate Ukraine from the USSR, from the Russians, you know. And uh, that's, uh, that's a way to, to consider these German soldiers. In, in Trois-Rivières, they were really, it was sort of amazing for the people here to, to feel so close to the war. Because for the last couple of centuries, all those wars in Europe... For the people in Trois-Rivières, it was it was far away. You know, there was no uh, emotional uh, implication except when the Pope was attacked in it, in Italy in the 1860s. But for the rest, the wars in in England or in France and in, in Europe in general that was uh, far away from their uh, preoccupations. But being uh, being uh, in Trois-Rivières in the 40s with these uh, German prisoners, it was really something. And because the exhibition ground was under construction, there was still a, a big uh, pool to, inaugur- uh, to, to finish. There was a sort of Olympic pool under construction. The construction has been stopped because of the war. And those prisoners, they, we say that... Uh, we, We've been told that they had uh, to work on that uh, particular uh, uh, public work because uh, it was uh, it, it. They were there. They should do something, you know, to be useful to their to their uh, to the to the, the Canadian government. So prisoners in Trois Rivières made little work, uh, maybe maybe big works on the on the exhibition ground. And it was the uh, same thing in the West. You know, if you go to Jasper or Banff, some of the, uh, some of the, the facilities there were, were built by uh, German or Austrian prisoners. They were park prisoners. They, they were called park prisoners. And did they, did they respect uh, the Geneva Convention for the treatment of prisoners? Because I, I know during wartime, uh, you know, Sometimes prisoners aren't treated so well. And I, I know, I was reading a book recently about um, what happened on the Channel Islands when the Germans occupied the Channel Islands, like the island of Jersey, for example. And I know they brought in prisoners of war to do a lot of their heavy labor, and they, they, were, ter- they were treated terribly badly. How were the prisoners treated? From what we say, it's been you know? pretty good, because some of them stayed in Canada, uh, from what I've heard, because uh, they, they weren't... No, we, we had no reason to hate them. That's it. When you're a French-Canadian, you have no reason to hate the Germans. Uh, I told you minutes before that it was a curiosity, nothing more. And uh, 
it was like that. So that was one part of this military camp, but the other part was training. So earlier you said that there were lots of English soldiers who came to to work there to be trained, and their families followed them. And Mainly officers, officers and civil uh, clerks from the Canadian Army. They came, and uh, so if you go, not so long ago, the, there's a neighbor, there's a neighborhood nearby called Saint Sacrement, just just down the hill from the exhibition ground. And not so long ago, the uh, street signs were uh, bilingual. It was Première Avenue, one ST for first, Second Avenue, Deuxième Avenue, two ND, <laughs> Third Avenue, Troisième Avenue, three RD. Not so long ago, these signs were there, and they, they remained there until the, maybe the, the 70s. And uh, that's the proof that this part of the city was, was uh, uh, hosted some Anglophone families. And there were still, in the, in the winter, there were uh, snowball battles between these people on the first coteau of Trois-Rivières, these Anglophones, and down the, the working uh, neighborhood nearby, uh, that was French Canadian, and so the French. I've been told by some of my friends who who have been raised there that there were snowball battles be, between the Anglo's up there and uh, the Franco's down there, and uh, it was it was in the 40s, and there was enough Anglo's to make a small army <laughs> of snowball fighters. <laughs> and to be sure that the that. The, Probably fr- friendly, friendly snowball uh, fight. Friendly, I'm not so sure because they had the tactic, you know, the, the snowball had to be a little icy, you know. <laughs> they, they, it, it would... It, uh, oh, ice ball yes, they were, they were they were looking for a ball that can hurt, <laughs> not a ball. That, that, it, it was not a, a small kid game. It was really a, a big kid game, uh, these the snowball fights uh, on the Coteau of uh, Coteau Saint-Louis. That's the name of the place, the Coteau Saint-Louis. And so you have the exhibition ground, you have the first level, and down there you have the uh, the basement, uh, the, the which is the, the, the old uh, French-Canadian uh, working, working people neighborhood. That was the 40s in Trois-Rivières with the World War. And in, in, in Cap de la Madeleine, the, the, the airport became military with the same kind of uh, uh, English immigration. Before we, before we talk about the airport in uh, Cap de la Madeleine, I, I'm interested in these snowball fights. Now, these snowball fights weren't happening. Were they happening in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s? When were these snowball well, fights happening? Uh, certainly in the 40s because there were some English uh, families up there. And uh, they left uh, in the 50s, but maybe the, uh, they left after the war. I mean, some of them left after the war, but maybe uh, on, the, on the upper level, <laughs> some French Canadians bourgeois 
took the place of the uh, Anglophone uh, officers' uh, children to uh, participate in these wars because it was it, it was a racial a racial war and then it became a social war, <laughs> a war of classes, not a war of races. <laughs> a war of class. Okay, so that's it. well, races are or languages. L languages. Really. I don't know that yes. we're that. A, lang a linguistic war became a class war. That's interesting. You know, I, I, I was just asking because my family's originally from Trois-Rivières. My father and my uncle were separated by actually 20 years because there were lots of miscarriages in between them and, and stillbirths and children who died, which was pretty common for those years. But uh, my uncle was grew up in the, in the 50s, and he says he went to uh, Three Rivers High School, and he says that most of his friends were French speakers, francophones from the neighborhood, and they played, and he grew up having really no sense of conflict between the English and the French. It was like, oh, here's his friend Denis, and he plays, you know, baseball and soccer and basketball with him and goes to school and, you know, has a friend Patrick or, you know, whatever the English name is. And he said that it personally, he never felt tensions between people personally, even, you know, into the 60s and the 70s when politics started heating up. He said, obviously, there was a, uh, on a, on another level, there were a lot of tensions between the English and French speakers. But personally, in his neighborhood, he never felt that. But like I said, it's, uh, it was obvious in Saint-Sacrement that there were two levels of, uh, of uh, people, you know, the down and up. Up was, uh, they, they were Francophones, but there were Anglophones also. So, like I said, uh, language is not the only issue. I mean, it was also an issue of class. And when you were up, you were an no. advantage. You, you had an advantage over the people who were down. Because uh, in a snowball battle, of course, uh, the snowball used to go down instead of... It, it's easier to make it down than, than to make it up. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, but that's true of all military history. Whoever had the high ground had the advantage, whether it's snowballs or or the bullets, bullets or bombs or cannonballs. You always wanted to have the. And high the ground. major fighter for the the lower uh, uh, the lower class people was uh, Jean Paul Girard, who became who, who became a boxer, a professional boxer, as Jim Girard. He died just recently. And uh, Jim told me about uh, these uh, snowball uh, battles, and he was he was the captain of the uh, of the lower <laughs> the lower army against the. And he said uh, when we he said we, we were at the at the at that school, and and, and he teached us that uh, Montcalm and Wolf had this uh, the battle. So when we came in the in the alley or in the in the streets of lower saint sacrement we decided that we will take uh, advantage of of uh, the anglos that were up there and uh, we will have a snowball battle like just like uh, montcalm and wolf but uh, probably it was different so they reenacted the planes if Abraham. you're talking about uh, the the uh, uh, St. Patrick's School and the uh, Trois-Rivières High School, of course, this is a very different neighborhood where French and English were mixing together. They were all part of the small bourgeoisie, you know, that's near the Shawinigan uh, uh, Water and Power head office and the uh, Canadian Iron uh, Shop. And uh, in this area, the mix was probably better than it was in Saint-Sacrement with with this, the, the, these two levels of uh, the, these two levels, I mean, of uh, 
of uh, class uh, and, and, uh, and fortune. So tell me about the uh, the airport in Cap de la Madeleine. In 1928, uh, Cap de la Madeleine wanted to be uh, have uh, uh, wanted to be uh, to have its own identity and to have its own uh, ways of uh, developing. And uh, with uh, Mr. Morissette, who was the general manager and later the mayor of of Cap de la Madeleine, they decided that uh, if there would be an airport in the Trois-Rivières area, it should be in Cap de la Madeleine. So he took, uh, he, he made the first move to have an airport before Trois-Rivières, and he, he succeeded in 1928. They had the, their own airport uh, with a lot of ambition. They were, they were dreaming of, uh, of uh, flights to, to Montreal, to Toronto, to New York. But then uh, the war happened, the crisis, the financial crisis of the 30s came, and then war came, and with the war, the federal government took the whole uh, site of the uh, Cap de la Madeleine Airport. People were uh, uh, coming there from all over Canada to work there. Uh, I personally, when I bought my house in 1980 here in uh, Normanville in Trois-Rivières, my first neighbor was born in Saskatchewan. He came here to work as a uh, mechanics at the, uh, at the airport of Cap de la Madeleine during wartime. And uh, he, uh, he, he decided to settle here with Marie, a French-Canadian, but uh, he, was, he was from Saskatchewan. He, was, he came here as an Anglophone to work at the airport. And another thing important at this time uh, was uh, C.D. Howe. We were talking about C.D. Howe, who was responsible for all this, uh, <laughs> this enormous war effort. He, uh, be, be, because he had to lodge the, the workers, in the uh, in the in the military in the shops, because he had to uh, to uh, prepare the the coming back of the soldiers uh, after the war, so he he made up a plan called the wartime housing plan, and the Trois Rivières was uh, one of the places in Canada where we had uh, so much of these little house all on the same plan, all on the same size. And uh, these, uh, it was called wartime housing. If you come to Trois-Rivières today, you will see on the, on the Marie-Le-Neuf, on uh, Abbé d'Alcourt, on uh, Place Harper, these wartime houses. And uh, same thing in Cap de la Madeleine, in uh, Rue d'Orval and some other places, because in Cap de la Madeleine, they had shops that could be converted to the war effort. In Canada, in, in Trois-Rivières, it was hard because it was mainly pulp and paper in Trois-Rivières. But if you go in Cap de la Madeleine, these little shops who were there, it was able to convert them to the war effort. They made munitions, they made bombs, they made uniforms. And to, because they had the need for workers who came from the, the countryside, they had to lodge them. So it was possible with the wartime uh, housing uh, program that was uh, another realization of uh, C.D. Howe, who was the strong man of the 40s in Canada. 
stronger than the prime minister, who was anyway a sort of <laughs> sort of weirdo. <laughs> you know, Mackenzie King was speaking to the spirits of. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> C.D. Howe was a little more uh, well, rounded. I, yeah, I know he was. He was a different a different sort of man, but he wasn't a weirdo. He 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 ran the country very well. He wasn't a weirdo. He just had a. Uh, an esoteric side, shall we say, and and I th I think he left um, a, a lot of personal journals. He wrote in his journal every day, and that's why we know as much as we do about him. Uh, but let's let's not get sidetracked. Uh, I want to come back to Cap de la Madeleine. It sounds like Cap de la Madeleine was uh, a buzzing hotspot of uh, wartime effort. There was this air airport yes. for shipping supplies, I imagine, during the uh, during the war. That's what it was for. And so there were all these mechanics, there were all these pilots, I imagine, too, uh, lots of support staff, they had to be housed. Um, but there were also the wartime factories, and you mentioned some of them. Were they in the Capitol of course, La Madeleine? Uh, they were, what, they were building bombs? Were, if, if you see the Reynolds aluminium, maybe you, you have known this famous uh, shop in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s, Reynolds aluminium. It was called, at the very origin, it was called Dominion Rubber, and in 1940... They they converted to Dominion munitions, and in '45 they came back to Dominion rubber. So it's the proof that for a couple of years in Cap de la Madeleine, this shop was building uh, was working on bombs. But one thing you should understand is that Cap de la Madeleine is very deeply French Canadian. So uh, the even uh, the the if you were an Anglophone in Cap de la Madeleine, usually you would live in Trois Rivières because in Trois it's just across the bridge, and in Trois Rivières you had all these institutions uh, in English, you know, schools and, and churches and and associations of all kinds. So uh, Cap de la Madeleine. In Cap, in Cap de la Madeleine, they had not really an English. They were not really uh, conscious of the the English, the Anglophone presence. But in Trois Rivières, obviously, there was uh, an afflux of uh, an arrival of people uh, speaking English and working uh, to, for the war effort. Could it be in, uh, in the airport or elsewhere? So there must have been people who came to work, like your neighbor, who uh, married French Canadians and integrated into the French-speaking community as well at that time. Yes, of course, because... Uh, your, your neighbor can't have been the only no, one. No, no, yeah. certainly not. And uh, uh, it was probably like that in, in other places, because, uh, uh, like I told you, in 1914, the war was a military affair, and it was a British affair, Great Britain was at war, and Canada was a colony in. But in 1939, Canada was independent. Canada was at war, and uh, it was uh, not only a, a matter of uh, soldiers; it was a matter of workers. We had to uh, to build ships, we had to build airplanes, we had to build pieces uh, uh, for uh, and parts for all these uh, these uh, vessels and, and planes, and we have to train people. We the war effort was very different from 1914 when it was a matter of guns and cannons, you know. Yeah, many many of the factories uh, during World War II had to uh, change their their production, didn't they, to support the war effort? I mean, if 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 in any way possible they could support the war effort, they and did. it was easier in Cap de la Madeleine because it was not a big pulp and paper. You you cannot take the Canadian International paper in Trois Rivières and make it uh, part of the war effort because they're producing paper. Uh, yeah, paper is paper. 
But the Dominion rubber in Cap de la Madeleine, it was uh, possible to, to stop the production of rubber or to, or to do rubber for the army. And same thing in a place called Nicolette across the, 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 the St. Lawrence River. There was a big shop called American Optical. They used to make glasses, of course. And uh, my father in 1942 was uh, unemployed and he was ready to leave uh, to, uh, to go to Gander, uh, Newfoundland to work for uh, the, for, uh, the, uh, the construction of, a, of an airport, a military airport over there. But he, finally he stayed in, in Nicolet for some reason because in 1941, when the, the U.S. came to war, uh, the American optical shop, even all the shops of the company, even uh, this one in Nicolette, they converted to uh, to the war effort, and they were doing uh, glasses for the for the uh, American uh, Air Force and some other things for for uh, the American war effort. So it was in 1942 in Nicolette, the the the, the, the this shop. Uh, multiplicated the the, the job uh, the jobs available. You know, it became uh, it became the main employer of Tro of Nicolette because of the war effort they, they were part of uh, as an American owned company. You know, so it led to a, a boom in employment, and it was a a positive thing for the yes. Area. After the crisis of the thirties, I mean, after the the this depression, this strong depression of the of the forties, you know, the thirties. In the 40s, it was uh, possible to uh, to do something uh, with your uh, two uh, hands and to be to be useful to to the society by working in, at the uh, for the war effort. Let's go back to the military training grounds. Were there any regiments that were associated with Trois-Rivières? We, we already have an armory and a regiment. I mean, the regiment of Trois-Rivières was uh, created after the Confederation, which is normal because after the Confederation, it was the first step of Canada on the path of independence from Great Britain. The, the, and the British were really glad about that because uh, the British were, were stuck with an empire. They had to, to defend an empire, you know, in Afghanistan, in Burma, in China, in, every, in Sudan, <laughs> in Khartoum. So uh, when uh, the Confederation uh, took uh, place, I mean, it was uh, the British uh, government said, that's great, you're going to have your own army. It will, of course, uh, officers will be from Great Britain. We've, we had another uh, uh, podcast about that, you know, but still there was an, a Canadian army in the early seven, uh, 1870s, including the Trois-Rivières Regiment, which is uh, still alive and which is celebrating its uh, 150th anniversary. And this regiment was, uh, they had problems to, uh, to have a, to, to a lodging problem, should I say, and uh, in 1905, they had their own armory, uh, which is a beautiful building on the 
you know, English castle style. Uh, it started in Toronto and Montreal. This kind of it was a, a whole generation of buildings built on the same plan. You know, all looking medieval, all looking Anglo-Norman, which is quite interesting, knowing that um, our ancestors were mainly Norman in French Canada, and uh, so uh, we had an armory of that style. And the regiment in 1940, in the Second World War, they had action in uh, mainly in Sicily and Italy, and then up there in uh, in uh, Netherlands. And uh, their officer, their commander was uh, Jean Victor Hallard, who later will become the first French Canadian to be the commander in chief of the Canadian Army in the 1960s. So that's really interesting. They had action in in uh, Italy and in uh, the Netherlands, because I was reading in uh, 1946, which we're going to talk a l about a bit later, uh, that there were several dozen war brides that came to Trois Rivières to be reunited with their husbands, and many of them were Dutch. Yes, yes. Even in Nicolette, we, we in Nicolette we had the. Uh, a Dutch lady and a Polish lady, both of them uh, followed a, a Canadian, a French Canadian soldier, to become part of our uh, everyday life. Yeah, and the uh, the Dutch were so grateful for Canadians uh, liberating them after the war that they still send tulips to Ottawa I, I every know. spring, don't they? Wilhelmine, Wilhelmine and Juliana. So that's beautiful. it. Uh, the Queen and the and and her daughter from. Uh, from uh, Netherlands, yes. Um, do you know one last word before we before we wrap up uh, this week? Do you know what the death toll was like for the Three Rivers uh, Regiment? No, I don't have the statistics, but uh, I know that when the war broke out, I mean the Trois Rivières Regiment was incorporated in other regiments. You know, there was uh, you you cannot. You can recruit somebody from Ontario to the Trois Rivières Regiment because it, the Trois Rivières Regiment will be part of another regiment, and uh, uh, you better you better speak to a, a military historian. What I am not, I know I know a bit about the British Army and uh, and Colonel Burton, but <laughs> don't know much about the, the 1940s. I'm too old. My 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 knowledge okay. is from way oh, back when. Not that old. Oh, you're not that way old. Way back when. Yeah, that's okay, Francois. You don't you don't have to be an authority on all the topics. But uh, if someone is visiting Trois Rivières, someone lives in Trois Rivières, and is there a war memorial? I think we talked about it in of a course. past show. Is there a, a place course, yeah. that commemorates those from Trois Rivières who fought in the front of the post the office? Where, the, where is this, that? The statue, this monument uh, by uh, Coeur de Lyon McCarthy. We had a chronicle about that, you and me, not so long ago. Uh, McCarthy, father and son, were uh, great uh, sculptors. Uh, and uh, they had this in 19... After the First World War, they, they had this, uh, this mandate to build, uh, to, to, uh, to produce a, a sculpture for, uh, to, be, to be installed in front of the post office in Trois-Rivières. It's been done in the early 20s. And later, in, in, uh, in the late 40s, there was a second uh, part of the monument who was inaugurated in honor of the, 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 fell, the soldier who fell in the Second World War. And this statue is still there. And uh, every year on uh, November the 11th, you have a ceremony uh, there and, uh, with the, 
le, cor, le, le cordon déployé, c'est quoi? There's an expression in, in, the, in the military world, you know, that it, it's very protocolaire, you know. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting hearing about uh, what uh, World War II was like for people in Trois-Rivières. Merci, François. À la prochaine. Thank you so much for listening. MCQ Views and Voices is produced by Case MCQ in the Mauricie and Centre du Québec region. And this project is supported by the Secretariat aux Relations avec les Québécois d'expression anglaise. If you like what you hear, let us know and get in touch with us on our Facebook page or through our website. That's Case MCQ. Our website is casemcq.com, so we're pretty easy to find. Music this week was strictly rhythmic, taken from something called D-Day Drum Display by the band of H.M. Royal Marines from the album D-Day 50 Years On. You also heard a snatch of V for Victory performed by the band of the Royal British Legion from the same album. I'll leave you with a bit more of that V for Victory piece. Take care, and thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon.